Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I discuss The City of God, a 2002 Brazilian crime film directed by Fernando Mireles. The film itself spans three decades, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and is focused on the main character, Rocket, who's an aspiring photojournalist living within the evolving world of a Brazilian project that eventually evolves into a urban jungle. More specifically, we got really excited about one particular scene called the apartment scene that takes place about halfway through the film. We decided to deconstruct it from a three-dimensional perspectively shot montage into a series of floor plans so we could study the way that the characters were moving around the scene, engaging each other, and how all the elements of the scene kind of reinforce the, uh, the narrative that was being told. So thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. All right, Austin, tell us how you deconstructed this montage into a series of four diagrams uh, with your crazy ways that you dive deep into these things, and let's talk about it. I th- yeah, I th- really, really, this was this is kind of like a labor of love in that I, this is like the third time that I've watched this film, and every time, single time that I've watched this film, I've come back to this scene, watching this montage, and going, that that is literally a diagram. That is a diagram of how a room descends into into madness descends from something that descends from something that like feels that. very homey as as an actual place that you dwell and then eventually descends into something that's about drug use and debauchery and something that's broken and i just love that concept and i and as i'm watching that i just go wow that's that's that is that that's something that deserves to have the elements broken down yeah. into these isolated moments where we can start to understand how like like what are, what are these isolated evolved moments that this that this room is going in. And so that's, that's part of what we want to talk about, right? Is like how to represent three dimensional media in two dimensions, basically. Like it's part of the process, right? Is the is the actual act of making? Right? Yeah. So yeah, that, like part of part of figuring out how I should represent this was almost trying to understand how many different diagrams I needed because there's so much content going into this three minute scene. I can't just draw one floor plan and represent the story of Donna and then the story of big boy and the story of carrot and story of blackie and the story of rocket like that. There's too much content to be shown in just one floor plan. And so part of the way that I started to understand this room was through these almost like epochs or through these, um, indivi- individual like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like through these individual micro narratives within yeah. the larger narrative of this room breaking down. So just as the whole city is going through the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, going from something pure to something experimental to something broken in Ooh. this um, kind of. Um, drug haven, um, urban jungle favela, we see Donna's apartment as home. And then we see the evolution through Big Boy and Carrot as transcending into drugs. And then um, at the end, we see it as um, the like the epoch of Bla- Blackie, who is really the room is being stripped of everything. And the factory. The, it's just turned into a factory. Right. So home to factory. And how do we get there? Basically? Exactly. And so to do that, I really broke it down into these four epochs, um, mm-hmm. the story of Donna, 
the story of Big Boy. I'm losing my cursor. Yeah, the story of Donna, the story of Big Boy, the story of Carrot, and then the story of Blackie um, that moves into when Rocket actually shows back up into the apartment. Mm-hmm. And what I what I love about thinking about the apartment in in these four ways is that within each of these kind of character epochs or kind of character micro stories, we see how the character is moving between the foreground or the main space, um, the background, these little isolated frame spaces of, of the bedrooms and the bathrooms, and then the middle character is kind of moving between and how the furniture is shifting to organize the spaces or create a different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so in the first scene or the first part of the scene with Donna, we really see all the elements representing home. We have Donna kind of in the foreground where she's smoking a cigarette. We see um, the room set up as a living room. There's a dining room table. There's even a curtain that's creating like a sense of privacy between the um, mm-hmm. kind of the utility of the dining room and the, the kitchen from where you might entertain with the living room. And then we have these like micro scenes of um, her... Uh, the montage moving into the bedroom where it actually reveals that aside from just being a home, Donna's also engaging in um, illegal actions of selling drugs and and sex and debauchery. Um, Semi-prostitution. Semi-prostitution. She's a good lady, though. Yes. She, we, we like to think that Donna, like, at the heart of things is is a lady, like a normal lady who's <laughs> just kind of trying to make a little extra money. But, but essentially, be, as the city itself is transcending from... Uh, an original projects into this urban jungle, we see that slow creep of of illegal action and and um, this transformation leak into this apartment as well. Can so, you, can you talk a little more about this curtain? That's really interesting to me. Uh, it's almost like this last semblance of of an effort to spatialize and like what that does that curtain disappear and how how does that? I think it does. And how does that? How is that kind of a metaphor a symbol for for this for this state of the apartment? Yeah. So. One of the, one of the, like really, it's almost like an E and not an EC. Uh, it's almost like an OCD moment that I had with this scene, <laughs> in that I became very invested and interested in the furniture and how the furniture was working and where it was positioned. Because that's what's changing, right? The walls aren't changing. The furniture is what's changing. Yeah, and the lighting too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think what I would I think what I want to do is kind of really quickly give an overview of how this is moving through the four scenes. Yeah. And then I'll quickly, I'll jump into how the furniture yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, really in this first scene, you see Donna treating this as a home. And uh, Donna essentially gets kicked out by um, a man named Big Boy, um, who essentially transforms her home into the beginnings of an automated um, uh, like drug um, kind of trading deal distribution yeah distribu- yeah distribution center so we have big boy kind of taking donna's dining room table transforming it into like a place where you buy and sell drugs and you have all the kids in the neighborhood coming in and interacting with big boy and and heading out so in the second diagram we see that really a lot of that kind of middle furniture is being pushed to the side and allowing for the automation of just people coming in and out to um, engage this kind of drug network in the third scene, we see Big Boy um, has handed over the apartment to one of his top dealers, Carrot, um, who is trying to re-engage this idea of home and and a, like a semblance of of um, taking care of the people around you by offering to give his friend um, like loan his friend some drugs, but the friend doesn't. Um, he ends up screwing over Carrot, and ultimately Carrot 
has to murder his friend in order to um, like survive in this own world that he's constructed for himself. So really in the third scene, what we have is the removal of what it means to um, have any semblance of, of relationship within the home. And then as we move into the fourth scene, we see the majority of all the elements stripped away and, and um, the only like piece of furniture that's left is this singular table where all the drugs um, are, are used to kind of um, be measured and wrapped. And, and um, really the only thing that you need in this drug environment is a single table to like do all this work. So mm-hmm. really across the four scenes, what we're seeing is home into an automation of selling drugs into the removal of any semblance of a traditional dwelling place. Um, and then in the final scene, we see that everything's been stripped away um, to just what you need to kind of have an operation. Uh, and so I think that kind of, that's a, an overview of how these four frames are working. Um, but you're, you're posing this question of how does the furniture fit into that? Yeah, for, so let's, let's talk about, I think, two, looking at your diagrams, two of the striking thematic um, uses that the director is using basically are furniture, um, lighting, and basically utility, which we've kind of just talked about, like the actual uh, factory nature as it moves from home to factory. So what about, let's talk about the furniture in each scene and how that, what does that symbolize as far as like the homeliness or the, um, I don't know, like it almost seems like it goes from from relaxed to tense or like um, spatial to aspatial or um, traditional to untraditional, right? So like, let's let's talk about the furniture in each scene. Yeah, so um, with Donna, what we see is all the furniture is kind of structured in a traditional home dwelling place. We have the dining room table set up to be used as a dining room table. We have all the furniture set up to be um, set up like a living room. And then that curtain um, in between the two is really acting as this informal element that is providing some type of... Um, kind of informal like separator between that which is living and that which is utility. And even even though it's a like a simple box room, Donna is positioning elements to kind of reinforce this idea of public and private, home versus <coughs> utility, like entertaining versus um, like working or preparing and stuff yeah. like that. And even like a separate foyer and a separate kitchen. Yes. You know what I mean? There's like there, especially the foyer element here, I think, which I think disappears after this scene. Like it's really kind of a entry space. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. So, so really, this first kind of Donna's world is set up to um, create a separation between um, her, wh- like how she is entertaining and what she's treating as public versus what she sees as like the private side of her house. And the first thing that happens when Big Boy. Um, takes over the apartment is he rips down that curtain. Mm-hmm. He basically says there's no difference. This, there's no difference between the public side of your home and the private side of your home. He strips away that security of creating um, that where you're entertaining or where you allow guests and and that which is more private to you. He strips that curtain away and he says this isn't about home anymore. This is about a drug operation. And, so and everything like important faces the door. Like it's like he, it's almost a defensive position. Like if he has a gun next to him, if someone walks in, like you could immediately defend yourself. Like the chairs are facing the door, the couch is kind of, it's all opened towards the door at this like, you know, we're on the lookout kind of thing. Absolutely. Like in in this scenario where he's creating this environment to deal drugs, 
he's positioned himself in a place of security. So the tables slightly move back a little bit further. He's um, in a position at the table where his back is to the wall and his front is facing the door. And all of those original pieces of furniture where Donna had set up to be a actual living room have been pushed aside, almost exploded um, against the walls to allow for this central movement of all the visiting characters to come in, have easy access to the big boy, um, trade money for drugs, and then leave. And there's less. What happened to the second chair? Um, Did he sell it? <laughs> the second uh, little chair, you know, the the sofa chair. I mean, he probably did. There's, I mean, like in in <laughs> just gone. Yeah, I, that's the that's the like lost story to the second chair. Yeah, we may the, never know where it went. I mean, you imagine that in this environment, you're slowly removing elements that are no longer of necessity. No one's gonna buy new furniture. Yeah. for a drug den. Yeah. Why do Why do you need? two places to sit and have a conversation if you're never going to have a conversation. You only really need that that table where you're doing the business deals. I like how you have Carrot's red hair. Do you have red hair on Carrot? Yeah, I did. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like, it's interesting. Like, you know, part of the way that I constructed this was giving little visual cues. Yeah, that's cool. To to allow for kind of an ease of understanding. So like with Donna, Donna's got like a pigtail in the back that allows you to understand her. Mm -hmm. Big Boy actually like increased the scale of the the size of the character. 20%. By like 20%. So Mm -hmm. like he loomed over the other ones. Uh, carrot I gave like red hair um, the like later on like like each of these characters I yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, given yeah. like a little descriptor to help to help the, the person viewing this kind of have like a bouncing ball or like a visual cue that follows through everything so what happens in phase three of the furniture so what's interesting is uh-huh. as you move from big boy who is kind of an older drug dealer who has always had a handle on how you run a drug deal operation. Mm. He's has an efficiency to the way that he's operated the furniture. Now, when Big Boy decides that he wants to kind of pull back from the front lines, kind of be more of a kingpin pin and turn over the business to kind of some middlemen, when he hands the business over to Carrot, Carrot actually, um, like, Car- Carrot actually doesn't push the operation into even more of an efficiency, actually returns some elements back to the way Donna had the house set up. So he's he because he's a newer drug dealer, he's actually taken the efficiency and allowed some of these elements to return to a hominess. Yeah, he spatializes a little bit. Yes. So he's actually taken the furniture and reconfigured them to have more of like a, uh, like a hangout or, or a waiting area or a place for like a communal gathering. And so because because he's a more naive drug dealer, he's actually reinvigorated some of the space with the idea of what it means to dwell or mm-hmm. have a place of, of, um, of co- communal atmosphere. But because he invites the idea of... Um, of home back into this operation, he opens himself up to being disappointed or he opens himself up to being used by, um, by characters who like, like it's one of those things where you like you treat in in a way it's like, it's one of those things where there's a little bit of a danger to treat your employees like family in that if you treat your employees like family, they might take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. In that there is no fear of um, 
being fired because you you wouldn't fire family. So if you treat an employee like family, like you, there's there's a a line of separation that helps the efficiency of operation. So big big yeah. boy treated everybody like employees, and he structured the room like a um, like an efficient environment. And so there it's office space. Yeah, everyone's got their own cubicle. Yeah. So <laughs> so. There's, there's no room for misinterpretation. But because Carrot is a more naive drug dealer and he's started to bring home back into this environment, we see characters come to Carrot and say, um, hey, can I borrow some money? Can I borrow some drugs? And Carrot being newer to this, he acquiesces and, and he loans some drugs, ultimately to um, the realization that if he's nice in this environment, he's going to get taken advantage of. And his friend ends up not selling the drugs and not paying him back. And this is actually, um, if I can interject, about the larger context of the film. This is a good moment in a comparison to like the film at large, right? Like, you see, this film is like it's a cool film and a lot of you know it's a very fast pace and then you're in this machine and some at some point you have hope and then like some tragedy strikes or so like at that dance when everyone is like finding love, like true love, teenage love. And like, it's a, you almost like imagine putting yourself in that situation, like hot night in like Brazil and everyone's having a good time. Right. And then there's like, all of a sudden someone gets shot and killed because of a misunderstanding. Right. Yeah. And it's like this scene, I think is a good reflection of that. It's like, it's almost like when carrot was young and naive and he, he tried to bring back the semblance, like the machine took over again, like the machine and in the inevitable, of like what what happens in the favelas like or the way the director is portraying what's happening in the favelas the inevitable is that the machine will eat you or you'll have to get out kind of thing so like this is the uh carrot having to shoot his family in the head like the guy that took him in right yeah because he didn't treat him like a employee because the employees operate the machine that is the city It, it it kind of this was carrot's last chance for redemption and then ultimately he had to sacrifice his any any kind of genuine hope of like whatever life or business he was living to just be a part of the machine and you see carrot's character devolve into this like workhorse like you know this guy who's like he's gonna get anything done right yeah and then that this moment kind of explains that pretty well it's it's that's an interesting point in that in a way i've been thinking of the apartment as a representation of the city in Mm. that from Donna to Blackie, it goes from dwelling to drug operation. And the city as a whole goes from the favela to an urban jungle. But in a way, the story of the apartment is also a micro version of the character arcs Mm -hmm. in that you have the characters in the 60s living in homes and feeling safer with drugs around them, but you could opt into that. Mm. And then um, in the second um, kind of, evolution of the room where you have big boy and the evolution in the carrot um in the story arcs you see all the characters who had a choice to opt into this drugged in environment in the 70s there it's becoming so rampant that it's now part of the general culture so it's not something you opt into anymore it's something that you're just a part of right. so that's an interesting point because there's like the idea of opting in it's like sometimes to make a livelihood which like this one of this the director's portraying in this film is like people either opt in or die, you know? And it's yes. like, this is kind of, that's probably how carrot had to operate or how black he had to operate. And like rocket is one of the main characters. He is like one of the few examples of the way he gets out is like, he uses his skill as like a journalist to finally kind of get out 
or as a, as a photographer, right? Yes. So it's like yes. he he folds his one skill or one kind of um, one his true nature of being like inquisitive and genuine to like into some semblance of a career, but that that semblance of his career also relates to the the drug operation. It's just he turns them in basically, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. So you're either in or out, but yeah. yeah. I mean, you can almost, the the third scene with Carrot, you could almost liken that to Benny getting shot in, in the party scene in that you have little Dice as the one who's pushing this drug ad- agenda and Benny who is part of it, but he's looking for other ways to work around it or to get out of it right and benny as the person who's not willing to benny's my favorite man benny benny really is he's 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 the best so sad Uh, that party was all him it really was everyone loved him he got everybody in there like he was he was the glue that held everything together but like you could almost see that like anytime a character tries to opt out of things they're removed from the story yeah because the story is about this transition into this drug atmosphere. So Benny tries to opt out. He gets shot. This character, like he asks for drugs to sell on the side. He doesn't actually sell the drugs. He doesn't opt into this like buying and selling drug lifestyle. So he's removed from it as well. So that's a lot of what we're seeing in this this third scene. Mm -hmm. And when we transition into the fourth scene with Blackie, um, after Carrot has to shoot his friend, he's incredibly depressed about this and he just wants to be removed from it entirely so you now have this transition from donna who understood what it means to dwell and live into big boy who understood what it meant to have a drug operation to carrot who misunderstood what it meant to have a drug operation opened himself up to disappointment and then you transition into blackie who is one of the youngest members and um, because Blackie's one of the youngest members He's never lived through the 60s into the 70s. He's really all he's ever known was this transition of growing up with drugs and drugs being a part of the environment. Right. And so Blackie's response to living in this apartment isn't to try to attempt to make it a home or even understand it as a home. The way Blackie structured this is, oh, I really don't need anything in here. All we're doing is selling drugs and this is a place to hang out. So everything is stripped away from the house and all you have is this singular table where him and the other kids are gathering around to kind of set everything up and and make these deals. Yeah. And every every transition from them is just different groups of kids rotating through this apartment just using it as this shell of a space for the operation of selling drugs. And it's almost like the idea or concept of ownership disappears too. It's almost like like you see in the end scene, there's a bunch of people walking in. It seems like almost like a place of business that anyone can walk into. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's not like he could have any sort of private time where he's not doing this. You know what I mean? So it's like it's almost like um like when you're in college and like you kind of or everyone kind of lives in the house or an apartment is like five or six people or four people and you kind of people come in and out roommates girlfriends and stuff and you're just like you know that's kind of whoever is there like oh there's a person on my couch like who's that you know what i mean yeah and then like this is kind of the opposite timeline perspective of this but like in you know and hopefully as you get older and like own a house or something you're not just gonna have random people sitting on your couches <laughs> you know what i'm saying well what, one of the things that i've always found really fascinating is the difference between people who decorate their desks and people who yeah. don't decorate their desks yeah because in a way like if you were 
if you if you say worked in an office and you're in an office, say you worked in an office. Say you worked in an office. I mean, you say could be, I do. You could be you say could, I do work in an office. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you could be a park ranger. You could work up in like a like a tower or something. Okay. But if if you're at a desk and you're at that desk eight hours out of out of the day, in a way that starts to become an extension of your home Mm -hmm. that's you have the house that you live in but that's a place that you reside for eight hours of the day and so you start to add trinkets or you add family photos or maybe you have like like a little toy or like a plant that you put there but you start to add things that suggest that this is another place that you dwell Mm -hmm. and we see donna doing that we see big boy structuring that as like he doesn't have a lot of personal things, but he's structuring it as like an efficiency kind of scenario. We see Carrot adding elements of home to it. But in the last scene, Blackie, it's just kind of an empty desk. Yeah. It's just he could move out at any time. Another person could move in at right. any time. So it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of way to think about where, like how, what we identify as places that we dwell in our lives and the people who choose to kind of engage those places versus just see these as empty shell spaces that could be turned over at any time. Yeah. And because these children were never taught a kind of like, because there wasn't a culture of dwelling somewhere because the whole city was this, because in the movie, the whole city is this urban jungle that all the kids kind of run rampant in. And it's, it's about this kind of communal atmosphere of being in these, selling and buying drugs and 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 these groups around the because they were living out on the streets the idea of living in a home is removed from their lives yeah and and i think that's what we're seeing at the end is the loss of the culture of dwelling inside these apartments because they're only ever dwelling out in the streets as the product of the slow evolution into this like urban jungle that the movie's portraying yeah uh, so one of the other main changes um that you per- like i'm trying to think about like static and dynamic elements right it's furniture it's people and it's lighting and the way you tried to diagram the way you, d- you didn't try the way you did diagram lighting i think is really smart and it's 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 like for example there's two diagrams that have yellow light which i assume is the artificial light bulb basically right and there's sometimes where rooms are very dark sometimes where there's a direct spotlight almost on a place um and like what do you think the director meant to do with lighting in this scene like what do you what, what was the purpose of that uh, as a tool to tell a story or do you think it's just unintentional <laughs> no i actually i actually think everything that the director placed in the room was a very i, I almost i almost saw these four scenes as every, everything in these four scenes as additional layers to the story that is trying to be told in each of these moments. So, for example, in Donna, we have um, the glow, the almost the warm glow yeah. of a homey yeah. light, like suggesting that this is a softer place that you could relax, uh, relax in the house. That that there's an inviting nature to the warmness of the room. And then when we um, transition into Big Boy's version that warm glow is removed and it's just about the sterile atmosphere of a singularly lit automated room. And this idea of having access to a bedroom or having access to the bathroom as elements of the home, the lights in those rooms are turned off and removed. So it's, it's purely only about this idea of 
we have a space that we have automated selling drugs and there's just a single light that's needed to um, like have this operation going on. And then as we transition into in the carrots room, there's some semblance of allowing there to be a dynamic nature to the lighting. Um, it isn't a sterile, um, equally lit room. The lights are actually turned down a little bit mm-hmm. to suggest that, I guess, I guess the way that I interpreted it was that the lights of the room were almost mourning the death not, not like evening and morning, but like like the sadness of mourning the death of what it means to dwell. This this is the last time that somebody's attempted to create an atmosphere yeah. where you could hang out. And there's a dimly lit environment of, oh, like life life could still happen here. And we're going to showcase this as like this sad light around this living room environment. And then in the last part of Carrot scene, Carrot shoots his friend. There's almost this like noir aspect to this, like yeah. the, like the uh, like the '60s cop show, where like he's like I think like and like he's in the light and the guys in the dark or vice versa, and you like you can kind of see like a real dark foreground, background, middle ground, like when like big boys in the front like smoking a cigarette, it's like I kill you or you kill him, you yes. know, and it's like yes. and it's kind of this like interesting um, middle point in this whole uh, whole process. Yes. Yeah. And then when we return to, um, when it gets to the end of the four sequence, when we get to Blackie at the end, um, we don't see what is represented as kind of the utility of a singular lighted environment, but we see a focused, a focused we see focuses on elements that are either calling attention to what it is or that's what is lost. There's no foreground anymore. Yeah, foreground's removed, and it's it, the focus is literally just drawn to the table, which is the operation, and every, like, there. there's no longer dwelling, and there's no longer room. It's purely just, these are just kids sitting around the table buying and selling drugs and preparing these drugs, yeah. and the only thing that matters to them is it's sitting around this table. So let me ask you this. I think we could have a, a quick dialogue about intentionality from a director's perspective. Like I'd imagine most things are intentional and it's almost like happy accidents. Like in like, and they're just begging for us to, or fans or, or critics to pick it apart afterwards, you know? And it's like the, I get like the warmth of the light, like that, that's a very intentional you know, that's a very, very intentional thing to do. But I'm, I'm just like wondering, like maybe the light's coming from that side because like, or, you know, they, they happen to be filming at that time of the day and that's when they can get that apartment scene, like, or that's when all, everyone was available to film. And like somehow there's a unintentional consequence that comes out of it. I don't know if, I don't know if that's the case, but I think like a lot of the things directors do, the directors like setting it up and there might be some unintentionality in it that we're kind of grasping after the fact. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not as, um, maybe that, maybe this scene was truly super, super intentional, but I think like as viewers, we always have to like, we always have to ask the question of, um, was the director kind of leaving, uh, some kind of breadcrumbs for us to interpret, you know? I mean, like, one of the most nuanced elements of, of the, of the apartment that actually took, I, yeah, I tell us about the process a little too. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't. It's it's interesting what it's interesting that the way that the room is presented 
and then the way what is required to document the room mm. so for example the apartment scene you really only see the room from the dining room table forward okay and so it's you can very easily just watch the scene a number of times and work out kind of the simple distances of things based off of like the height of a person or like the length of a couch or like you know a bed is probably going to be like four feet by eight feet so that bedroom in the background is probably like like 10 by nine or something like that so you can you can use elements to kind of figure out the approximate size of these things but that but to construct the room just from that scene alone was actually impossible in order to understand um, where the camera is actually positioned or how the room completes itself you actually have to jump an hour further into the film where Rocket goes back to the apartment and is having another dialogue with Little Dice. And we see Rocket taking pictures around the room. And mm. the room's actually even more fallen apart with broken walls. Ooh, round two. Right, yeah, round two. <laughs> um, round two that at, at that point, <laughs> I was, I was I'd lost the passion at that point. <laughs> but, what? No way. <laughs> but, but like... To, to kind of understand how the room actually completes itself, you have to go a little bit further into the film to realize that there's this kind of utility side of the room where there's just boxes and and like a refrigerator and and just the, the back end of the room. But once you do the due diligence of placing all these things, then you can actually have fun with all, like all these little pieces are like, there's, once you've placed all the, items that construct the physicality of the room then you can start to ask the question about how much each of these nuanced elements are actually contributing to the narrative that's being told and and ask the question are they actually being used that way or are they just the physical realities of a room itself let me ask you this though this is and this is the interesting parallel between like design and from you know, our background in architecture and actually drawing plans to create a concept where storyboarding is very similar to that. Do you think that the that they actually made storyboards like this? I, I know you have no way of knowing that, but they could have done it one of two ways, right? They could have done it in a two-dimensional space first. Like, literally, they could have made these diagrams and mm-hmm. then filmed it. Or the director could have designed it through perspect- or through his own lens, his or her own lens, and uh, constructed it from that vantage point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess it could be done either way. And I'm, it's interesting to to kind of uh, be interesting to look at some of these other directors' films or other concepts like this and and, and kind of uh, talk about that concept further, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think if I was acting as a director, I would almost I would almost not start with images and I'd almost start with words. I would probably start with what is the arc of the city? And the arc of the city is um, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I'd write those down. And then what's happening with 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's a slow transition into the urban jungle. Then I'd ask the question, what's happening with these characters? And then the characters are going from innocence to being surrounded by innocence to either opting in or opting out of the drug environment to having no choice to opt in to opt out to being completely involved in it. So I'd almost start with those words and how those characters play in. And then... I would almost, I like as a director. I imagine that I would almost work entirely in perspective, and have the film like have the sequence of these four perspectives, and start to almost the way that it's represented in the film. I would just start to layer on all of these elements. But what's what's 
kind of interesting about what I found interesting in the way that we see things as um, architectural designers, we tend to, I mean, sometimes we start with words, but a lot of times um, out of the efficiency of drawing things, we start with plans and sections that kind of work out the spatial mm. environment. And with the with drawing this plan, it allowed me to think about these things not as a fully curated story, but allowed me to think about these things as a kit of parts. Yeah. And the kit of parts of I have the foreground room and I have these two uh, background bedroom and, and bathroom. So I have a kit of part of spaces. Then I have a kit of part of characters. The kit of part of characters is... Um, who is positioned where, when are they interacting, and what is the sequence that they're moving through? And in each scene, they tend to take like a threefold path. Donna in the foreground, Donna in the background, Donna in the middle ground. Mm. Big boy in the foreground, big boy in the background, big boy in the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Carrot in those three places. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about the lighting itself and the furniture. So how are, how are the lights turning on and off? How are the pieces of furniture moving around? So in in a way... I imagine that the director probably set up four scenes and layered it on as the physicality of something you'd look at. But as an architectural designer, I saw it as a floor plan and as a kit of parts that are being layered on as at stage pieces yeah. within each of these scenes. So you're basically um, reverse storyboarding while deconstructing through a kit of parts. And that's yes. like and that's a cool way to approach cinema. And I, I think like you know, there's so many parallels between filmmakers and designers and it's, it's just kind of a, it's a fun intersection to talk and discuss. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I think we're kind of at the, kind of at the end of this conversation. Um, I mean, what, what kind of final thoughts do you have on this, on this? I mean, maybe we covered it already, but I mean, I wonder if we can find, um, can use these, these tools and other films we're watching in the future and kind of like apply this, like, it's almost like a methodology that you created to kind of, to create a, like, further analytical, logical understanding of, of a three-dimensional media. So I, I think it's really cool. I, yeah, I think, I think what's interesting about the parallels between cinema versus architecture is that in architecture, we create stories as a way to produce spaces and film construct spaces as a medium to tell stories Mm, and so just in the way that we start in on on one side of this kind of duality to end up as a as a physical product and and film uses a physical product as a way to create a metaphysical um, piece of information i think the way that there's 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 a strength in being able to take either of those equations and ask if you can flip it and see it from the reverse. And so taking a film, which is a sequence story, and then asking if you can take a piece of the sequence story and start to reverse deconstruct it as a physical space and how that physical space has pieces, I think that's something that kind of shows the film from a different light. And I think filmmakers could also reverse engineer the way that architects think about spaces as a way to build kits of parts into the narratives that they're moving towards. So I I think both sides, like being, being, I think there's a conversation that can be had between architecture and film that allows us to see each from the reverse to open up 
the the lens to expose more of both. Wise words, my friend. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Thank you. I I really enjoy these diagrams. Thanks, buddy. All right. All right. You, you have any other thoughts? No, I think that's yeah. I'm, I'm it was good. good. So watch the flick and watch this montage. All right, guys. All, All right. right. Take it away. Bye. Hey, everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thetablesessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.